From Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma, I'm Teresa Carey. Opioid use disorder is a chronic disease, but we still don't treat it with the same perspective as other complaints or diseases. If you have diabetes or high blood pressure, for example, you can go to your doctor and get medication to help. But that's not always the case for patients with opioid use disorder. Sometimes, regulations, lack of knowledge on proper drug dispensing, stigma, income, or race can get in the way. The war on drugs has really contributed to a legacy of structural racism that has resulted in uneven access to evidence-based treatment for substance use disorder that we know works. We have a long way to go to addressing those inequities if we really want to get to the heart of the issue and save more people from death from overdose. We took a step forward on March 29th when the FDA approved Narcan nasal spray for over-the-counter non-prescription use. I think the regulatory component of it is titanic. This is a watershed moment, but ensuring that it, it provides the maximum benefit I think that part I'm, I'm a little, I wouldn't say skeptical, but hesitant that it's going to be a true game changer. Fierce Pharma reporter Fraser Kiensteiner continues to explore what that approval means for the opioid epidemic in this second installment of the Narcan special for The Top Line. Before the Mainstreaming Addiction Treatment Act, Healthcare practitioners had to apply for a separate DEA waiver to dispense certain drugs that help treat substance use disorders. But with the passage of the MAT Act and Narcan's over-the-counter approval, what does that mean for access to treatment? Dr. Jonathan Watanabe, who served on a White House Office of National Drug Control Policy Committee, talked with Fraser Kansteiner about the regulatory framework necessary to make Narcan affordable and available to everyone who needs it. Here they are. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Uh, Watanabe. It's been uh, really interesting kind of looking at the enthusiasm and excitement and also some of the skepticism around the over-the-counter approval of Narcan that recently came through. And I'm excited that we have a chance to dig in a little bit deeper. Sounds good. I appreciate the time. So Narcan and, and Naloxone more broadly are, uh, you know, emergency interventions for people that are actively overdosing. Um, I'm just curious, sort of from the start, when it comes to those other drugs that are for treatment of opioid use disorder, such as Vivitrol, Suboxone, Methadone, um, you know, we've heard from experts such as the American Addiction Center CEO, Thomas Britton, that federal regulations have actually made it rather difficult and complicated to administer that sort of treatment to patients. Um, you know, has this been true in your experience from what you've seen? Yeah, there's been, there's certainly been some important efforts recently. So the, uh, up until this year, so that was just in the recent overbuilt where they um, change the federal regulations so you no longer need what was called the uh, Drug Addiction Treatment Act uh, 2000, the Data X waiver. So there was, until this year, there was a limitation in who could prescribe buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. So there was basically a, a wavering process that you needed to go through. And then once you even were wavered, there was actually a limit on the number of patients you could treat. So both of those had this effect of just clamping down on the total number of patients 
that could have access. That was for buprenorphine, which was the only office-based uh, treatment where you could pick the medication up at a pharmacy. Um, the other one that you mentioned is methadone. Um, that's the when it's used for opioid use disorder. That's the most highly regulated medication in the United States. That's the one that you can only typically get that at an opioid treatment program that calls OTPs or historically mm -hmm. methadone clinics. There's uh, fewer, I think, than there's than 2,000 in the entire country. Um, and oftentimes that would entail actually having to go to that OTP many times each day uh, to get your uh, to get the methadone dose. And, and you can and certainly that's why things got more problematic in the pandemic. And, you know, I'm curious, as this pertains to Narcan, um, have you seen similar barriers to access? I think we hear a lot about stigma being one uh, overriding problem. But, you know, I also think about how prior to this over-the-counter approval, there were access laws in all 50 states that, that technically meant you could get it without a doctor's prescription. Um, I think in, in actual practice, it didn't often work out that way. So maybe if you can speak to some of those challenges as they pertain to Narcan specifically. Yeah, as, as you mentioned, in, while with every, I think all 50 states had a mechanism where you could get naloxone from a pharmacist um, without a prescription, that could be either based on there was already a standing prescription order that had already been developed. There were, um, uh, they needed to just get, a, there was ways to actually print the prescription or there are places where the pharmacists could prescribe if they had, basically, if they had the, the training. So I think virtually every state, there was mechanisms of getting uh, naloxone by just going and speaking with the pharmacist. However, there was there still was, was speed bumps. So there was all these kind of places where, while uh, accessible behind the counter, there were still barriers that were in place. The thing you mentioned still remains, and that's why this is is not this is not the the perfect solution because there is still stigma. We know that um, I mentioned buprenorphine as well as naloxone. These these are things that can be at pharmacies, but oftentimes um, they still were not. Opioid use disorder it's a it's a chronic brain disease that these patients are actually protected under the Americans with Disabilities Act. It is it is illegal to discriminate discriminate against patients with, with opioid use disorder. We need to make sure they get the care they need. But that that doesn't mean that that uh, that stigma has completely been extinguished and, and I think that's what we need to do a much better job at. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, tying in a bit more to the idea of opioid use disorder as an actual disease um, and, and the rights of these citizens, you know, I, I just want to ask what sort of policy changes you need to, you think we need to see in order to improve access to opioid use disorder treatments more broadly and then maybe Narcan specifically, because as you say, the over-the-counter approval isn't just a silver bullet. It's not going to necessarily solve all these problems right away. Right. I, I mean, I think that I was a part of that uh, workshop that was uh, sponsored by the Office of National Drug Control Policy, and there was some there was some bright folks that were part of those meetings, and and they were they illustrated there's there's actually a fair number of policies that are on the books to uh, to protect patients with opioid use disorder or, or improve access. It's just many times we're not enforcing them to the to the full extent they could be. So just basically ensuring that some of the regulatory horsepower is there to to ensure that these these policies, laws, regulations, what have you, are followed is an important step. 
Uh, but also, a lot of these things do come down to ensuring that there, there's coverage, that these medications um, are affordable, both to the, to the patient. There are situations where uh, pharmacies have described that the only the medication that was covered for opioid use disorder uh, for, the, uh, for that patient's plan was also happened to be the one that was the most expensive um, for the, the pharmacy to acquire. So to ensuring that, that the, uh, basically the economics are sustainable for all those that want to be involved. I know that there's a lot of pharmacists that want to participate, but basically that's, it's not always kind of sustainable to assuring that, um, that they, when they do order enough medications to treat the patient population, they don't have to worry about being kind of red flagged by the, uh, by the DEA, mm -hmm. all these kind of things, ensuring that uh, when, when patients are using or trying to access medications for opioid use disorder, there's a little bit more insight ensuring that the kind of the regulatory framework is supportive of that. Um, just because something goes OTC uh, doesn't always make mm -hmm. it, a, doesn't necessarily mean it's affordable. In fact, there's scenarios where things get more expensive when they go over the counter, because that may mean that it's not covered by insurance. If it's not prescribed, may not be your insurance covering it. And so you're not going to get that uh, potentially inexpensive copay. You'll be facing the the full cost of the medication, the OTC price. So I think that we've got to really make sure that um, it's accessible and affordable, because if it's not those things, um, then a good chunk of the benefit is just immediately lost uh, because they won't be able to have it. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm going to ask a bit more specifically about price. Um, you know, obviously Narcan, as you mentioned, is just one branded product. Uh, Naloxone itself has been around for, for decades. Um, it, you know, and I think it's important to put into context the fact that this is good news, most likely for emergent biosolutions, because they're facing generics on Narcan now. Um, so there is definitely a business component to this that, you know, could benefit that company. Um, I just want to ask, I guess, more explicitly, you know, could the price of over-the-counter Narcan keep the drug out of reach for people who need it? And, you know, what happens... Uh, or what needs to happen for the non-prescription version of the drug to actually be accessible in, in the way that I think some people are hoping for with this move? I can't comment exactly on what there are some groups that try to discern what the what the most reasonable price would be, but I, th I think they're still deliberating on what the what the price will will ultimately be. Uh, I think even this summer, and as you mentioned, I think that there may be um, other potential. Uh, FDA approvals for for over the counter naloxone as well. Those those tend to have a benefit in terms of of just making it a competitive marketplace to marketplace to bring down the to bring down the price. But uh, yeah, this is a this is a place where we it, it, you can't just necessarily leave it to the market to to make it affordable. We need to make sure that it's affordable. So I, I hope that there's plenty of 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 groups and organizations, and and I think they're there will be that are already deliberating on ensuring that um, the out-of-pocket price is, is not too onerous for people that need it. And, and that is actually another benefit of potentially making over-the-counter is uh, organizations can buy it in bulk. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's the potential that we could do things to in the purchasing mechanisms to make it less expensive and then consequently make some of the... Um, dispensing of that uh less expensive because there's going to be less regulatory hurdles 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just to touch on this one more time, um, you know, do you think to some extent the U.S. itself needs to intervene in terms of distributing and making this accessible, uh, just given that this is classified as a, a public health emergency? You know, I would have to see there, there's definitely been some other examples where there was um, uh, purchasing of, of agents by by the federal government. I think that uh, there's going to be some hard looks at ensuring that public health agencies know how to get uh, supply they need. But that's certainly something that could be contemplated. Absolutely. You know, what do you or how do you rank, I guess, the the ease of use of Narcan, the, the nasal spray formulation, as opposed to other uh, methods of delivery, such as, you know, for instance, an auto injector? Um, you know, do you think this is a good uh, sort of route to take in terms of, of widespread use? It's about as this is this is about as easy as it gets. I think it's 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 even probably less work than than the auto injector for for um, epinephrine because you just literally just have to you don't have to prime. In fact, you're not supposed to prime it uh, because you might uh, dispense the dose. But you you literally just take it out. Um, you open the package, um, put it in the in the patient's nostril, and then um, and then eject. And then if they don't respond in a few minutes, you you would um, do it again. So I think it's they, they did do it well, I believe, uh, in terms of making it uh, easy to use. Going back a bit to drug development and, and also just the commercial side of all of this, I, I'm curious uh, for your perspective on, on what you think this uh, over-the-counter approval might do in terms of inspiring other companies to sort of uh, move into the opioid use disorder space. Um, do you think this might be a catalyst of some sort? I I hope it it inspires mo more organizations, companies, firms to 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 become involved. Um, I, I think what it is is it's some of the regulatory challenges we've mentioned. Those that even when it it again, buprenorphine is is legal and and available, but we're still we've we've had challenges ensuring that the the prescribers can prescribe it and the patients mm -hmm. the patients could could get it. So so I think we do need to think about that sometimes those kind of last mile issues of making sure that um, if you have an innovative uh, treatment or these things that are there that basically the the regulatory speed bumps are, are not going to prevent it from being used in the in the way that um, it's approved for. I think that the, what we're seeing is this. I think the urgency is is not just that we're trying to uh, deal with a problem, but that problem is accelerating. So you know the the treadmill is moving faster. We need to adapt for that. Absolutely. No, I think that's an important point to hit on. Um, so, you know, I want to ask, uh, I guess, just a bit more broadly, we've talked a lot about uh, the Narcan over-the-counter decision as well as other um, opioid use disorder treatments. But, uh, you know, thinking specifically about this over-the-counter approval, just how big do you think this is in the grand scheme of things? You know, do you expect it to move the needle and, and uh, how do you sort of perceive the overall importance of this decision? I, I think the regulatory component of it is 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 titanic. I, I think that is in that the availability is is uh, as a real I, I would say that's this is a watershed moment. But um, ensuring that it does what it it, it provides the maximum benefit. 
and he provides the the benefit that's intended. I think that part I'm I'm a I'm a little I wouldn't say skeptical, but hesitant that it's going to be a um, a true game changer. I, I want to really that, that it's going to it's going to make a meaningful uh, difference in reversing the course. I I don't know if it's going to do that. I think it's going to it's going to help um, many many people that. Uh, historically, not historically is the right word, but the, it's going to help those that uh, probably would not have it because of the of the the challenges we mentioned. Just it's almost just that the the uh, inconvenience of the current framework. Now that that's that's been uh, removed, I think it's going to it's going to help those folks. But ensuring that this. It's kind of reaches full flower in terms of the it the benefit that it could have. I think that it's still a little bit of a wait and see for for a lot of the things we mentioned: um, mm-hmm. stigma, cost, availability, access. Um, there's a lot of pharmacies. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of pharmacies, but a lot of others that are actually closing in some of these underserved areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so making sure that just the the infrastructure um, is is there to to really ensure that it's it's available. I think we still have to wait and see. I'm, I'm, I'm very. I was, I was thrilled, um, and, and it's very encouraging. But I think that this, um, this is not quite a, you know, a slam dunk, if you will. Mm. Yeah. No, I appreciate that perspective. Um, great. Well, you know, thank you so much for your time and expertise. Obviously, there is still a lot of work that needs to be done, and there's there's many many unknowns. But you know, as you mentioned, from a regulatory perspective, this is this is a pretty big move, um, and you know, I'm just hopeful that it leads to some more substantial changes across various areas. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say that just in this uh, effectively basically this year <laughs> we've seen some some incredible kind of landmark efforts to to help um, patients with opioid use disorder i'm glad we're taking bold steps fantastic that was jonathan watanabe and fraser kansteiner while i have your attention fierce healthcare's anastasia gladkovskia and hero health will be hosting a panel on remote therapeutic monitoring. How is it different from remote patient monitoring? And how can it be leveraged by providers? You can register to attend the panel by following the link in our show notes. How do race and income factor into the opioid use disorder landscape? And what about substance use disorder treatment behind bars? Well, Libby Jones, the program director at the Overdose Prevention Initiative at the Global Health Advocacy Incubator, has something to say about that, and it might come as a surprise. After a word from our sponsor, we'll hear from Libby Jones and Fraser Kansteiner. ZS is giving voice to patient centricity. Move beyond the buzzword to discover how to bring patient-led business models to life. Join me, Victoria Summers, Principal in ZS's Patient Health and Equity Accelerator, as I discuss effective strategies, best practices, and real-world examples with ZS experts from across the industry. Bonus content features patients in their own words, sharing their personal health journeys. You can find us at ZS.com. Look for the Patient Centricity Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
Libby, thank you so much for talking with me today about Narcan's over-the-counter approval decision. Well, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Yeah, so Libby, I'd like to start by getting sort of a comprehensive view of the the wider opioid use disorder and, and overdose landscape in the U.S. Um, as it stands, how do factors like race, income level, even location influence overdose death statistics in the U.S.? You know, absolutely. Um, that's a great question. 108,000 Americans died of an overdose last year, and those deaths, while they have impacted people from coast to coast and every demographic, there are real profound differences in terms of access to treatment and harm reduction services that people rely on to save lives. The war on drugs has really contributed to a legacy of structural racism that has resulted in uneven access to evidence-based treatment for substance use disorder that we know works. So for example, the overdose death rates among black Americans have doubled in the past four years. But yet we know that treatments, effective treatments for opioid use disorder are less available in communities of color. So for example, researchers at the University of Michigan found that buprenorphine, which is an effective FDA-approved medication for opioid use disorder, is much more likely to be prescribed to white Americans as opposed to black Americans. There are also really dramatic uh, geographical differences between where treatment is available. So for example, 80% of U.S. counties have no opioid treatment programs that prescribe methadone as a treatment for opioid use disorder. So we have a long way to go to addressing those inequities if we really want to get to the heart of the issue and save uh, save more people from a very preventable death from overdose. Yeah, thank you. And I appreciate you bringing up sort of the conflict between the, the war on drugs and uh, treatment of substance use disorder as an actual disease, which it is, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that really differs in the US compared to other countries. I think that's a common theme we've heard speaking to, to multiple experts on this topic. Absolutely. I understand that the Global Health Advocacy Incubator recently helped with the passage of the Mainstreaming Addiction Treatment Act. Um, yep. Can you maybe just explain a bit to us about how that policy has helped remove barriers to addiction treatment writ large? Uh, you know, again, other drugs like uh, buprenorphine and uh, methadone, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, we think that the Mainstreaming Addiction Treatment Act or the MAD Act was really one of the most significant pieces of legislation that's been passed in recent years that really will increase access to treatment. So what the MAD Act does is it removed what was called the X waiver, which was requirement for healthcare practitioners. Uh, it was a, this uh, requirement that they had to receive extra training and an extra certification from the DEA in order to treat someone with an opioid use disorder. By removing that X waiver, we've gone from 130,000 healthcare providers in this country being able to treat opioid use disorder to 1.8 million providers oh, wow. almost overnight. And the more, uh, uh, the more providers we have, the more hands on deck that we have to fight this crisis, the better off we're going to be. That's a, that's a pretty staggering figure. Um, 
you know, with with the passage of the Mad Act, what's what's next for uh, the incubator, just in terms of and the overdose prevention initiative, in terms of uh, you know fighting the the opioid epidemic? Yeah, I mean, we are solely dedicated to advocating for federal policies that expand access to treatment. We really want to prioritize expanding access at those points in time and in those populations where people need it the most. So we are dedicating our advocacy efforts over the next, um, probably the next year, in advancing access to treatment behind bars. We mm. really feel that that is critically important to to saving lives. Uh, you are 40 times more likely to die of an overdose within two weeks of uh, release from jail or prison. And so getting folks access to, to evidence-based treatment prior to release from jail or prison is going to have a, an immediate impact on preventing uh, preventing overdose. Uh, there's a bill that we are advocating for called the Reentry Act. What the Reentry Act does is it will reinstate a person's Medicaid benefits 30 days prior to release from mm -hmm. jail or prison. This allows uh, an individual to be connected to care out in the community, to receive medications for their opioid use disorder that will help stabilize them and actually protect them from overdose. Um, uh, at post-release. So we really feel that this is an important first step in um, combating the overdose crisis by focusing on getting uh, getting treatment to individuals uh, who are incarcerated. You know, we're also looking at methadone. Uh, the, the MAD Act really expanded very quickly access to buprenorphine. Mm. Methadone is also a very uh, important medication for people suffering from opioid use disorder. So one of the bills we're looking at is called the Modernizing Opioid Treatment Access Act, or the MOTAA. And what that would do is it would allow uh, methadone to be dispensed at community pharmacies. Um, so we feel like this is also an important um, step into making methadone more, more accessible to those who need it. Yeah, could you actually talk a bit more about the the barriers to access to methadone? This was something that was brought up by uh, Dr. Jonathan Watanabe, who's uh, at UC Irvine, and he was on a White House panel uh, specifically dedicated to thinking about policy to increase access to methadone. But he he mentioned that indeed, it, it, despite it being approved and, and well proven, it's it's not been very simple to actually distribute it to patients, not distribute, but to administer. Methadone is very highly regulated by law enforcement, and this has created some significant barriers to treatment for people who need that medication. Methadone has been approved by the FDA, I believe, since the 1940s. This is a very proven uh, medication, but federal laws mean that, or federal laws and regulations require that methadone only be prescribed and dispensed at DEA-certified opioid treatment programs, or OTPs. Uh, there are, I believe that, I haven't seen the, the most recent number, but I think it's under 2,000 of these programs exist nationwide, and there are giant geographical gaps between them. The last uh, survey data that I found, or I've seen shows that 80% of counties have no OTP. Americans who need access to methadone, which is a 
very um, important tool that we have for treating opioid use disorder, they're very limited as to who can actually uh, be treated at one of these OTPs, just the geography alone. Right. Again, just kind of staggering figures when you really put it into perspective and think about what a large toll this problem is taking on the U.S. Um, I want to quickly circle back to uh, your work with incarcerated populations. Uh, as I understand it, a lot of the issue there in terms of procuring and, and providing medications, it comes down to funding. Is, is yes. that correct? And if so, how do you think the over-the-counter approval on Narcan might specifically uh, facilitate uh, more access in, in prisons and jails? You know, our team has been very fortunate. We have visited um, some jails um, and tried to learn about the programs that are currently available in these in these local jails. You know, funding for these these programs continues to be an issue, mm-hmm. and that's why we have prioritized the Reentry Act and you know, working with Congress to address the Medicaid inmate exclusion policy. It's the medications like buprenorphine, for example, seems to be most frequently what is prescribed um, in jails and prisons. Even then, it's it's very rare. So more than 65 percent of people who are incarcerated have a substance use disorder, Mm. but less than 12% of those individuals are offered any form of evidence-based treatment behind bars. So we need to address that. The medications themselves are not necessarily that expensive, Mm. but, you know, if you look at the size and scope of that, that problem, jails and prisons need access to, medic- to, we believe, Medicaid resources to be able to provide, you know, evidence-based treatment that has standards of care behind it. Mm-hmm. And that's really what's missing. So the one program I'm thinking of in particular does provide Narcan to individuals at the time of release. There is a solution to this problem we have the Narcan. We have the ability to connect people to treatment. We need to be able to do that. Definitely. Now, I know with the the passage of the MAT Act, I believe you were in attendance at a White House event um, yes. in connection to that. I want to actually just sort of ask, uh, you know, the Biden administration has made fighting the opioid epidemic uh, a major pillar. Mm-hmm. Uh, of of uh, its its goals, and uh, I want to ask you how um, your organization views that initiative in terms of uh, how it stacks up to prior efforts from the White House, the federal government, in order to to combat the issue. I mean, the Biden administration uh, they issued the very first uh, national drug control strategy for uh, this administration last year, and in that strategy they articulated a goal of everyone getting access to treatment by 2025. These are really lofty goals um, that really will require a whole-of-government approach. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, President Biden's 2024 budget proposal actually proposes $50 million to be set aside for harm reduction. You know, this is, this is huge. That's the first time that an administration has... Um, included harm reduction um, in their budget proposal and at such a high rate. So, 
you know, I think that the Biden administration is is doing a lot. They have set some aggressive goals, but it's it's not just a matter of what the president's um, you know office is saying. It really does require um, a whole of government approach. Absolutely. Now, um, you know, I guess almost in an existential sense, what what do you think needs to happen next, you know, sort of among the industry, among the public uh, to kind of move the needle forward uh, in this uh, fight against the opioid epidemic? You know, again, Narcan being one specific drug and, and this move being significant, but kind of a small step overall. Yeah, I mean, our ultimate goal would be to see uh, naloxone available again, wherever and whenever people need it. Ultimately, we want Narcan to become part of essential first aid. You know, Mm -hmm. defibrillators are required in public spaces, and eventually I think Narcan uh, should be too. Um, uh, You know, making Narcan over-the-counter is, is, you know, really critical to those efforts. But, you know, if... If folks can't afford it, uh, then all of this is for naught. So, you know, we we want to see uh, CMS issue guidance that says that OTC naloxone products can be covered by Medicaid. Mm-hmm. This is going to be critically important that Medicaid recipients can get this mo- medication for a lower price. Um, you know, I am the the mother of a teenager, and so I have been, um, you know really sensitive to all of the data coming out of the CDC that shows that the death rate among adolescents in the last two years has increased by over a hundred percent. And, you know, one of the, the more devastating parts of that is that 60% of those adolescent deaths were at home. Mm-hmm. So we need to make sure that, you know, parents and loved ones are armed with this medication so that they can save, you know, the lives of someone that they love. Um, and you know, that's just, it's, it's really important that, um, that expansion of things like naloxone, uh, just become part of our daily lives, that they become more visible and that everyone knows how to play their part. Well, Libby, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I think we've done a really good job sort of looking at some of the more complex social issues surrounding uh, the opioid use epidemic in the U.S., and I, I just really appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much. That's it for The Top Line. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. And that's The Bottom Line from The Top Line.